You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. And if you are not a children and you are staying with us this morning, you are in the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, picking up where we left off right prior to Easter. And we're going to be talking about church discipline today. I know that when you got up this morning, you thought, I want nothing more than to come to church and hear about discipline. That is exactly what my soul needs to hear today. Go preach it, pastor. I'm pretty sure none of you thought that. Nobody ever thinks that. This is one of these passages that... um, Pastors might skip over because they don't like to preach the reality of this passage. Uh, Preaching through a book of scripture, verse by verse, line by line, I don't have the luxury, which is great, of skipping things which I would ordinarily want to skip because of the difficult nature of the passage. Um, So we are going to plow headlong into it. It's also one of the passages that's most taken out of context in the entire scripture, Uh, In all of scripture, there are several passages that are taken out of context the most in the world. This happens to be one of them, so I won't spend a lot of time on why, but when we get there, I'll point out why we take this one out of context and maybe how we need to view it in context. Um, But before we get started in the reading of the passage, Matthew chapter 18, just stick your finger there. When I say the word discipline, what comes to mind for you guys first? Um, What? Punishment? Okay, right? No, that's fair. Uh, What about anybody else? Corrective action? Okay. Uh, Anybody else? I'm not sure if to pray for you or clap for you. (laughs) Um, See, there's this range, though, right, that people get when they think about the word discipline. Um, It's probably based on your previous experience with the word discipline, how your parents disciplined you, how your teachers disciplined you, or punished you for your infractions. Your experiences in childhood have uh, formed you to determine how you view, react to, and in many cases, avoid discipline as an adult, both from God and from others. And because of that, we really need to look about what godly discipline is, how the church is supposed to discipline, how the body is supposed to work together for that. Um, So there's two types of discipline in scripture, okay? Here's the brief definitions of them. There's corrective discipline and there's formative discipline. Um, In the very specific sense, corrective discipline, church discipline, is the act of a church confronting someone's sin and calling them to repent of it. And if the person doesn't repent, then ultimately the discipline could culminate in excluding a professing Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper because of unrepentant sin. That's um, corrective discipline because its purpose is to correct, right? It's the kind of discipline that we might ordinarily think of. Here is something that has gone wrong. Please change how this has gone wrong. Let us help you. If you will not, then discipline ensues, okay? There's also something called formative discipline, which is what the church does in the broad sense to help its members, professing Christians, um, pursue holiness and fight sin. This would be like preaching and teaching and prayer and corporate worship and accountable relationships and godly oversight by pastors and elders. Those are all kinds of formative discipline. Um, In fact, the majority of the New Testament scripture is written as formative discipline, which calls believers to live a holy life, which calls believers to flee from sin, which calls believers to live together in unity and love. So formative discipline is the process of continually submitting to God and godly authority over you, which forms you into the likeness of Christ. So in reality, ooh, let there be light. Um, In reality, every Sunday morning that you come to church, you're submitting yourself to formative discipline, discipline which is going to form you into the shape of Christ. And the hope is that as you submit yourself to formative discipline, you will not need corrective discipline, right? So the more you are formed into the likeness and the nature of Christ, the less you will need that hand of corrective discipline in your life. So our passage this morning, though, it speaks to, generally speaking, 
All believers in Christ, anyone who would say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead to give me new life. It speaks specifically, though, to those people who are professing believers and members of this church or a church. So you might be visiting from somewhere. You might have a home church somewhere. If you are a member of a church, this is where this passage is speaking directly. Because when you are a professing believer and you have united in membership with a local church, God's word would call that being obedient to God in fullness. Because as Christians, we're called to submit to local church leadership. We're called to submit to the leadership of the church over us. But if we have not become a member of a church, we are not submitting ourselves, as scripture would tell us, to the church and the, and the leadership of it. Membership in a church is not about the right to vote in a board meeting, okay? It's not about the right to uh, be in a special club. It's not about a sign of perfection in the life of a believer. It's not about the numerical size of the church membership list from the administrational perspective, okay? Being a church member is about becoming obedient to God and allowing God's body, the body of Christ, the church, to have authority to speak truth and comfort and rebuke when necessary in your life. It's about saying, I know that we are all covered by the same redemptive blood of Jesus so that when I err in something, you all can come to me. And I would expect you to come to me and I would want you to come to me and say, we see that there's something in your life that doesn't match the faith that you profess. Can we help you in that? Is there a way that we can pray for you, correct you, encourage you, make you accountable to this? I would expect that because I am part of the body of Christ. Likewise, you all should expect it from the body of Christ to offer that same kind of discipline. Um, if you are not a member of a church, nothing is going to stop you from hopping from one church to the other whenever you don't like a song or a person or a sermon or are offended by someone, or they don't do your special program, or all of these kinds of things where people can become offended. If you're not a member, nothing stops you from just hopping to the next church until you run into the same problem, then hopping to the next church until you run into the same problem. But as Christians, we're not called to live like that. We're called to join together with a specific local body of congregation of people and knit our lives together with them in service for the glory of God and the good of the kingdom and the well-being of our hearts and lives and families. If you are church hopping, you are avoiding and running from accountability and submission to God's authority that you need in your life, the kind of corrective, informative discipline that you need. You're running from it. Um, you are saying, in essence, a Christian can live and exist outside of the bounds of fellowship of the body of Christ, and that's not what God's word teaches. God's word teaches that we need to be part of an accountable fellowship. The reality is that we are all bought with a price under the blood of Jesus. And we don't get to claim the name of Christ without submitting to his authority. And uh, his authority was given to the church. So we need to submit ourselves to a local church and its leadership, to the body of Christ for accountability, for formative and corrective discipline. So all that said, to those of you this morning that are here and are a member here at this church or another church, this passage should carry some significant weight for you because this is going to be how you are called to live, both in the giving of discipline and the receiving of discipline. It's not just that you get to be, I'm the one who gives discipline. It doesn't work like that. You are also the one that will eventually receive discipline for something, and that's good. We want that in our lives. So when you hear the words of Scripture, they should come as comfort to your soul. Because you know that if you begin to run off the road in your faith life, there are going to be people that are going to act as guardrails and say, no, this is not how you are called to live. This is not how you profess to live. Let us help you stay on track. That is really, really good for our souls. To those of you here who are not yet members, but maybe you attend faithfully, maybe you come regularly, um, I would really encourage you to consider becoming a member of this church or another church that you would say, I want this to be my church home. To seek to join um, a bunch of people who are not perfect but are running the race after Christ to strive and love and follow after him. Um, I would say, man, you should really seriously consider it. The foundations class I talked about earlier is the class which we would say is our membership class. Come and learn about who we are and what we believe and see if you would like to partner with us in obedience to Christ uh, running this race that we've got. And to those of you folks who are newer here 
Uh, maybe it's your first time or second time or third time. Maybe you are um, evaluating whether or not you want this to be your church home. Maybe you're not a believer and you just showed up and you're trying to figure out what faith is all about. Um, we are really glad you're here this morning. This passage is specifically aimed to those who are believers and members of a church. But uh, what we are talking about today has principles that are, that are just good for life in general. Um, we're going to talk about things like conflict and how we might resolve it. And those principles, whether or not you're a believer or a member, those principles can be applied to family situations and work situations and you know, friendship situations. And so you can take the nuggets of this passage and apply it in your life. Our hope overall, though, is that ultimately by the end of the message, you would have been convicted by God's word, no matter who you are, that A, um, you might need discipline in your life and it's time to receive it, that B, um, maybe I need to be a member of the church or that C, maybe I need to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and ultimately have that great reconciliation between me and God because this whole message is undergirded by the gospel. Um, we're going to talk about that here in just a second. This passage um, is the gospel in action. And so when we talk about church discipline, we're talking about nothing except that which Jesus Christ did for us first and then calls us to do with other people. So if you would stand with me for the reading of the word, we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to help us understand this difficult passage this morning and not just understand it, but to learn to receive it and apply it in our lives. Father, as we read your word this morning, um, would you speak to each of our hearts? Would you, um, would you open our mind and our hearts to how much you absolutely love us? And that when it says in scripture that discipline is necessary but good, Lord, would you help us understand that's for our life too, that we're not exempt from discipline. And that ultimately, Lord, uh, we deserve the greatest punishment, which is death for our sins. But you came and you died on the cross and you took that upon yourself so that we don't get the bad side of the punishment. We get the good corrective discipline from you. That's good for our souls and for our lives and for our eternal life as well. Lord, I pray that we would hear with fresh ears your word this morning, that I would speak only that which you've called me to speak and nothing else, and at the end of the day, we might all look a little bit more like you from formative discipline, and that we don't need as much corrective discipline as we draw closer and closer to you. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse uh, 15 and going through verse 20. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you, that the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Consequently, the very last verse of that, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them also. One of the most out-of-context passages in the scripture. People take that to use that just about anything. Um, most people take it to mean, hey, where two or three are gathered, we can have a little worship service, right? As long as we're here, the Lord is there. Total truth, right? If a believer is there, God is with them. This verse is about church discipline, though. This verse, two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That means when two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, covered by the redemptive blood, brought together in unity in Jesus Christ, they are both seeking unity in God, then God is with them to bind them together in unity and overcome the differences that have overtaken them. This is about two people who have been separated by conflict being brought back together because the common ground they share is Jesus Christ. Nothing else should matter but unity in Jesus Christ. So... Um, there, there's your nugget. Don't take that out of context in the future days of your life. What we need to know is that discipline is the gospel in action. Discipline is the gospel in action. Regardless of our previous notions, church discipline is not a dirty word. It's not a dirty phrase. It's not something that we should never utter or that we should shy away from. 
In fact, church discipline is an imitation of the Father's own relentless pursuit of us. It is the gospel in action. Because when we were in sin, right, we were at odds with God. We had conflict between our soul and God. And that sin and that conflict separated us. And it was our own choosing. We wanted sin. We wanted our own way. And we chose to turn our back on God. We saw that in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit and then suddenly sin had entered the world and their relationship with God was not what it was before they had sinned. So now there's this problem that mankind, each of us individually, has sinned against God and God is like, well, golly, there's this huge gap between me and the people that I love and they're not running any closer to me to fix this gap. So I will run closer to them to fix this gap. I will go seek them out. I will go down to earth and I will relate with them and I will love them and I will encourage them and I will tell them not to sin anymore and I will try and draw them closer to me so that the gap might be closed. Now, ultimately, the way in which that occurred was on the cross. We talked about that on Easter. Jesus was punished for our sins so that we could have forgiveness and be united with God again. Now, what we need to know about sin is this. Without church discipline, sin will win. Without church discipline, sin will win. It will fracture the fellowship of us together if we allow it to take root. It will sow bitterness and division among people that are united in Christ. Sin will choke the life out of the church, right? So let's look at this from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, perfect family, perfect unity, living in unity with God. Sin enters the world, fractures the family, and separates the family from God. We have the church. The church is the family of God, right? The body of Christ. The greatest enemy of the church is not from outside the church. The greatest enemy is allowing sin to take root inside the church. We must live out the gospel and church discipline so that sin does not take a root in our own lives or in the life of the church. In the gospel, God does not let sin win. He forgives its penalty, he breaks its power, and he restores what it stole, and he heals what it broke. To rebuke sin and to extend forgiveness is to push back the darkness that threatens to extinguish the life of the gospel in our hearts or in the church. It's literally when we discipline someone... In love, it's to hack at the root of evil in the life and to, and, to, and to completely remove it from our lives. When we confront someone in sin, we should have in hand a rebuke for that sin. And this is done in love. This isn't like, you horrible, dirty, evil sinner, because we are all sinners. So, I mean, let's not, you know, throw things at people. But we say, this doesn't... This doesn't match what you profess in faith. That's a rebuke. That's just in love. Man, I can see you're struggling with this. Can I help you? And at the same time, in the other hand, we have a blank check of forgiveness. So that when that person says, you're right, I'm so sorry, we sign that check of forgiveness, hand it over, and it's done. We've gained a brother back, right? This is what scripture says. See, um, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault and between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. You have unity again in the body of Christ. And that is so, so important. So despite the pain that discipline can cause and the discomfort that it can bring, both on the receiving and the giving end, because let's be honest, it can be awkward if we're not in the practice of engaging in discipline. It can be a little bit awkward. Despite those things, we shouldn't treat dealing with sin in the church like it's a dirty chore. We need to count it as a solemn privilege to imitate the good shepherd who, though he had a flock of 100, when one wandered away, he left the 99 to go after the straying sheep and to bring it back to the fold. To say, you've erred, let me rebuke the ways in which you've left. Come back. He pursued us when we strayed so that we could be joined again to fellowship. And we, as the body of Christ, are called to act that out with one another. Because if discipline is the gospel in action, then discipline is an act of love. Discipline is an act of love. Parents, can I get an amen on this? Okay? Discipline is an act of love. Some discipline is soft and gentle, right? It's a little correction. Please don't do that again. And that's what's needed in that moment. Sometimes discipline needs to carry a little bit more 
uh, oomph behind it, you know, no electronics for a month, or you may not go out on uh, that whatever thing that you want to go to. Discipline can sometimes cause pain to the one we are disciplining for the betterment of their life and soul. That's why we're doing this. Discipline is an act of love because love is not what the world will tell you love is. Love will tell you the world is permissive. Love will tell you the loving thing is to let them do what they want to do. The loving thing is to allow because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. That is not what biblical love is. Biblical love died on the cross because sin was so great. Love, as discipline as an act of love, is not permissive. It does not permit sin to overtake the life of a believer. Now, to many churches, discipline sounds downright mean or judgmental. Um, I mean, we read the passage, right? Did that sound judgmental to you? If they will not repent, tell it to the church. Everyone's going to know what your sin is. And if you still do not repent, let them be to you like a Gentile or a tax collector. Let them be gone from the fellowship. Not that they can't attend church. You'll want them to. But they no longer have the privileges of membership because they are unrepentant, unwilling to change something which is so detrimental to the body of Christ. That sounds judgmental, but it's the most loving thing we can do because souls are at stake. And we must do what the gospel tells us to do. Here's what God tells us about love and discipline. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. And for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Should we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirit and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We're to be trained by discipline. I think I've got this up here. This is from Hebrews. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. If you receive discipline from God, if you feel his Holy Spirit checking you when you are doing something you shouldn't, it means he loves you and he doesn't want you to do something that's hurtful. God treats you as children like good parents who discipline. He's course correcting you so that you don't get into trouble. And if you are rejecting his discipline, you're rejecting him. You might as well, he says, be an illegitimate child. You are not receiving his love as a father to a child. Discipline leads to peace and holiness. If you'd like peace in your life, you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, receive that correction from him. It's an act of love from God the Father to all of us children. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. But why? When? How should discipline be enacted? Is it every little sin? If you tell a little white lie, should the church corner you and say, you're a sinny sinner, we're going to put this before the whole church, and if you don't repent, we're going to kick you out. We need to exercise some uh, wisdom in how and why we discipline. In church discipline, we must exercise extreme care. It should be rare that discipline should ever reach the church-wide level. It should be even rarer that a church should say, we, we no longer recognize the fact that you are part of the, the brethren of Christ, that your unrepentant sin is so bold and so brazen that we would say, no longer can we permit you to partake in the Lord's Supper or membership with us. That should be incredibly rare. Because um, if we were to act like um, um, sin sniffers or you know bloodhounds for sin, we might be acting on our own ideas or taboos, or pet peeves, and not what Scripture says, okay? So we need to exercise extreme care. Scripture, not our opinions or dislikes, need to be the guide for what sin is. Furthermore, we should not become hypercritical or spec inspectors or sin bloodhounds, okay? We are not to point out every person's sin all day long. That would get very tiring, very depressing, okay? We would be hearing it as well as giving it. That's not what God is calling us to but rather, like First Peter tells us, love covers a multitude of sins. 
Just forgive the small ones and move on, folks. Proverbs tells us that to overlook an offense is a glorious thing. Has someone wronged you? Just just forgive them. Just move on. Love them. Don't love the sin and move on. Jesus even tells us to turn the other cheek, right? Someone sins against you? Turn the other cheek. It's not a big enough deal most of the time to cause the conflict that we allow it to cause in our lives. With that in mind, there are a few cases that sin should be addressed. There are a few places that we must engage in discipline. Um, Conflict which threatens unity. Difficulties between members which threaten the unity of the body to which we are called. This is what this passage is speaking about specifically. If there is conflict between party A and party B to the point that when they come to church on Sunday, everybody's going, oh, oh, that's what's going on there. And they won't sit next to each other and they won't speak to one another. And they might even be gossiping about the situation to their group of friends in church behind their back. Okay? That needs to be stopped in its tracks. Divisive people causing divisions in the church. People who run around the church and spread rumors or lies. People who undermine the leadership of the church without first talking to leadership go behind the backs of people to make someone look bad, to destroy ministries or the witness of the church. That must be stopped. Immoral conduct. Sins of the type that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians, like incest and immorality and covetousness and idolatry and abuse and abusive speech, drunkenness and swindling, and idle busybodies who refuse to work but run around saying there's no work being done. These are the kinds of things that Scripture says no further. They need to be handled. They need to be nipped in the bud. They need to be hacked out of the body of Christ. These things destroy the unity which we are called to live in. Not only do they destroy the unity that we are called to live in, they destroy the witness of Christ that the church has to the to the unsaved world. Also, false teaching. If there is false teaching going on, got to be stopped. Cannot be permitted. Erroneous teachings and views which concern the fundamentals of the faith and not lesser differences of interpretation need to be handled. Let me say that in a different way. As Christians, we believe in some core values. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and is alive today and forevermore. We believe that God is three in one, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We believe that the Bible is the word of God to us, that God wrote this and gave it to us so that we would know who he is, who we are, and how we are interact with him and with others. We believe that the body of Christ is the church, that he has given the church certain um, passions and desires. We believe that he has given the church the ability to go out into the world and witness And when people come and teach that Jesus isn't the Son of God or that there is another way to be saved except Jesus or that this isn't the only way you can hear the word of God, there are other books, we would say those are false teachings and we need to stop those teachings immediately because we do not want to um, produce sin by teaching false things. Certain things need to be dealt with immediately. But when we deal with these kinds of issues... We must enter into discipline remembering that discipline is the gospel in action. Discipline is an act of love. And our goals should be primarily to glorify God, seek unity, and seek the restoration of those who are in sin. If the discipline is the gospel in action, it is meant to pursue and woo back sinners. It is an act of love, not an act of power. Okay? So how do we do it? How do we discipline? How do we enact this process? What do we do if I have conflict with someone in the church, if you are at war with someone, or if there is a sin that needs to be addressed? There is a process that this scripture lays out for us. In um, Christian worldview, it's just called the Matthew 18 process, right? So you might have gone to someone and said, hey, I've got a problem with someone, and they might say, have you tried Matthew 18 yet? Which basically means what we're about to talk about, okay? It means this. Go to someone one-on-one. This is the best way to resolve conflict. Someone has something against you or you have something against someone or someone sinned against you or they're gossiping against you or something has gone wrong and there's sudden conflict. Just go talk to the person. 
They're a person, like you're a person. You're both covered by the same blood of Jesus. Jesus had died for the sins which you are holding against them or they are holding against you. You don't have the right to do that. So just go talk to the person. This does a handful of things. One, it limits the possibility of gossip, which is a sin, and keeps the issue to be best resolved between the two parties involved. This is the ideal. It should stop here. This is where all conflict should end. One-on-one, you go to the person and you say, man, it really hurt my feelings when. Or, I know that I wronged you when I X, Y, or Z. Will you forgive me? And if the gospel is um, in action in our hearts and our minds, we write that blank check for forgiveness and we hand it over and we say, sure, brother, sister in Christ, I love you. And I know that Jesus' love for you covers the sins which you have done to me. Let's just be done with it. Let's just love one another and keep serving Jesus. That's the ideal model, that we would get together, find common ground in Christ, being both bought by the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and because of that, be willing to receive rebuke, receive correction, extend forgiveness. Conflict should end there in an ideal world, but it doesn't always end there. Sometimes the situation is so heightened, has gone on for so long, that there is so much bitterness in our hearts that we actually can't figure out how to make it work one-on-one because we won't listen to one another. We want our voice heard, and it's just not going to make headway. So... Scripture says, bring two or, two or so other people with you. Take, take two or three witnesses. That doesn't mean witnesses to the actual offense, right? Because the offense might have been a private offense. But this means take two or three other people with you, trusted people, people who love Jesus, people who submit to Jesus. Take them with you and say, listen, if you're not going to listen to me about the detriment of this broken relationship, will you listen to this person whom you also love and trust? That they might help speak wisdom and life into the situation. Then as the group is talking, the resolve might be made. Well, I won't listen to you because I'm really angry at you, but I will listen to you because I love and trust you still. We don't have broken relationship. I'm more willing to listen to you right now. That's where the two or three witnesses come in. There might be a brotherhood and a sisterhood and an encouragement together that, you know, um, this can this can be fixed. Um, two or three often help, but in the off chance... That resolve cannot be made at this point. The witnesses are going to come in to help at the next level. The witnesses are going to say, hey, we've followed biblical principles. They went one-on-one, and it didn't work real well. Um, We met as a group, and they still wouldn't be reasoned with. They won't let go of that sin in their life that's destroying their life, their family life, the unity of the church, whatever the case is. Um, We can say that we've tried everything we can Now we need to take it to the church. So if that fails, the church is made aware. The church as a whole is the body of Christ, right? Christ is the head. We are the body, which means we are not to tolerate sin in our midst. It is appropriate and biblical to approach church leadership first for this step. It doesn't mean you have unresolved conflict with someone and you say, hey, pastor, I have an announcement to make on Sunday morning. And then you get up and you shame someone publicly there would probably be sin on your part because you want that person to get in trouble. You want them to feel that shame. You're not looking for redemption. You're looking to punish that person. That's not great. Following the biblical model, you'd pull aside a board member or the pastor in the church and you would say, here's what we've done so far and we're really torn up about this because we want unity, but we can't quite figure out how to make it work. These are the things that we've done in scripture, I think says that the next step is the church. And then we would grieve and pray over that because it is sad that it would get to that point but then the church would be made aware. Now, um, I've actually never had to enact discipline at this level before, but I've talked with some pastors who've had, and it went something along the lines of this. There was a man who was abusing his spouse, his wife, and they approached him one-on-one, and he didn't see a problem with what he was doing. They approached him, a handful of people, uh, two or three witnesses came and said, listen, um, you say you're a believer, but you're beating your wife. This cannot continue. Not only is it illegal, but it's immoral and wrong. Please repent of this. Let's restore this relationship. Let's work with you and your spouse. Let's let's see if we can get you some counseling and some help. He still refused to repent. So the church wrote a letter to the congregation saying, um, here are the details, broadly speaking, of what's going on. Um, We would encourage you in love to pray for these people, to pray for this man. We're going to give you a short time frame, two to three months, 
to go seek him out, to pray with him, to take him to lunch, to encourage him, to chastise him, to rebuke him, to do what needs to be done so that the whole church is saying, we don't tolerate this sin. This isn't okay. And if he still doesn't repent at the end of that period of time, then we'll take him off our membership roster. He's no longer um, part of the membership of this church because he's unrepentant in sin. His life living is totally contrary to the way scripture would have us live. Um, I've only ever seen it enacted once or twice. It's incredibly rare, but when it happens, it needs to happen in love, and it needs to happen with grace, and it needs to happen um, firmly. Love is not permissive of sin. Um, Love is the gospel in action, and the gospel in action is that sin would be removed and that we would be called to live a life of holiness. So if they fail to be reasoned by the entire church body, then and only then should membership removal become the action. And it is an act of love because if you allow someone to live in sin, it will only lead to death. And we don't want that for anyone. So what does discipline accomplish? What does discipline accomplish other than um, causing problems in our life while we try to enact discipline? And the awkward conversations that occur and maybe the, the, the more anger it brings to the surface. Here is what biblical discipline brings about. It calls a believer out of sin. That's good, right? That's really good that we would call a believer out of sin. For instance, here's the biblical example. There was a man in the Corinthian church who was having an affair with his father's wife, right? Um, And the church approved of it. The church approved of it. And Paul commanded the church to exclude that man so that the man might learn what he was doing was wrong and repent and be saved and come back to the church. But if the church does not act in discipline and call a believer out of sin, the church is basically saying, Jesus gives that the rubber stamp. Jesus is okay with that kind of behavior in the life of a Christian. And it's not true. Don't make the church a liar. We are to call professing believers out of sin. Church discipline warns other Christians Christians about the dangers of sin. It might be that the church disciplines someone and someone else is struggling with that same thing and they realize, well, maybe I didn't know that was a sin or maybe I didn't realize how serious that was. Um, Paul told Timothy that if a leader sins, he should be rebuked publicly so that the rest of the congregation may stand in fear. Now, as a leader, I don't like how that sounds. Okay, I'm just going to be transparent with you. That sounds terrifying. Okay, That's why it says in Scripture... Not many are called to this office, and they are held to a higher standard. Because if I am ever in such a sin in which I cannot be resolved one-on-one or two to three with me, then it goes to the whole church. You need to publicly bring me before the church and rebuke me for this sin so that I can see how wrong it is. And so that everyone else can see sins not tolerated among the leadership or anyone else. Church discipline purifies the church as a whole. Paul writes this. Don't you know that just a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's saying this. Just a little bit of yeast in a a bit of dough makes the whole dough go up. Likewise, just a little bit of sin in the church can make the whole church explode. One little bit of sin, one little apple ruins the whole barrel, kind of, I think is the modern phrase. Excommunicating an unrepentant member will keep sin's destructive influence from spreading and results in a purer, holier church. The idea is that though out of the membership roster, they would be free to come to church if they should still so desire and hear the gospel and be loved on by people who say, I love you, but I don't love the sin, which is exactly what Jesus tells us, that they might repent and become a professing believer in line with Christ again. Church discipline gives a witness to non-believers, right? It, um, would you be surprised to, to, to learn that church discipline is probably one of the most positive and powerful evangelistic tools? When a whole community lives in a way that is radically different than the way the world is living, people wonder why. Well, it's because we don't tolerate sin. It's because we strive to a higher standard. It's because we're called to live a holy and pleasing life, and God enables us to live that way. And when we live that way in our personal life and then come together and collectively live that way, giving grace when people have sinned, forgiving people when they have sinned, 
moving on from those sins that are no big deal that we can just let go, and then holding people accountable on the big ones and saying, this doesn't look like what Christ has called us to live like, then that presents a really good witness to those who are unbelievers. It talks in Corinthians about um, if the church is gathered together, and I'm paraphrasing here, and they're all uh, speaking prophecy, meaning not telling the future, but telling the truth about their lives. They are saying what is going on. Here's the sin, and here's how we can rebuke it. If the church is doing that together and an unbeliever enters their midst, when he sees that happening, he will fall on his knees and repent and be saved. There is something really powerful about the way the church handles sin that shows grace and love and accountability. People want that in their lives. It's a witness to those who are not yet with Christ. And lastly, church discipline promotes the glory of God. Christians should be, obviously, holy, more so than the world around us. Not for our own reputation, not so that we can go, we are the church and we are more holy than other people and shame on sinners who are not as holy as we are. That is not the picture at all. We are to be holy as God is holy, which is humble and seeking purity. As the church increasingly reflects God's love and holy character, we put God's glory on display for all to see. It's like a billboard in the community. And that is why God made the church. God made the church to be refined in his image. Each individual believer putting aside sin, receiving the discipline, repenting of things, coming together, living together as a community that is altogether um, rejecting sin and seeking holiness and purity. And when we do that, man, that is just like a billboard in a community. It glorifies God, leads believers to live a more holy life, leads non-believers to repent of their sin because they want what we have. And what we have is just peace and holiness in Jesus. The reality this morning is we are all in need of discipline. Even me. We're all in need of discipline. We're all in need of the gospel in action in our lives, right? We all need Jesus to continually speak to us. The Holy Spirit to continually work in our heart and say, no, scoot a little inch this way because you're, you're veering on something. Don't take that left-hand turn because you know where that leads. You've been down that road before. We need the Holy Spirit in our life. We need that kind of discipline. It's the gospel in action. It's God loving us. It is not enough to hear the word, but we must hear and obey the word. And so there's a lot of scenarios here. I'm going to run down them for you, and you are going to find yourself in one of them this morning. If you consider yourself to be a Christian this morning, a professing believer in Jesus Christ, but you are living in a way that is contradictory to the way that Christ would describe Christian life in Scripture, then you've got to hear this rebuke this morning from your pastor's heart, but it comes from the heart of Jesus. Stop sinning. Repent of that and turn back to God because sin only leads to death and destruction. You need to do what you need to do in your life to avoid that sin. You need to tell someone that you trust in the church who loves Jesus, I am struggling with, I need some help with, please pray for me because. Get some encouragement and accountability and formative discipline. Sin is not to be engaged regularly as a practice in the life of a Christian. If you are not a Christ follower, both Jesus and we as the body of Christ want you to know exactly how much God loves you. He loves you enough that while you were still sinning against him, he died for your sins on the cross so that they could be forgiven and you could have relationship with him and be called to live a holy life and choose things that are good and righteous instead of things that lead to destruction. We would urge you to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, and be saved today. There is no reason that you need to leave this building still a sinner lost in your sin. You can leave this building knowing that you've got life eternal with Jesus Christ, and you're part of a body that's striving for that holy life, and we're, just, we're on the journey together encouraging one another. You don't have to do it alone. You can do it with us. If you are not a member of this church or a church, but you attend this church or a church regularly enough to say, yeah, I consider that my home church. If I'm going to go to church, that's where I'm going to go. 
I want to ask you, what is stopping you from becoming obedient to scriptures and the Lord and becoming a member of the church, joining yourself together with a bunch of other people who have said, we commit to Jesus, we commit to each other, and locally we're going to commit to a community for the glory of God. What is stopping you from becoming a member? Choosing to be obedient so that you can enjoy the blessings of unity in the body of Christ, sharpening others towards holiness, and allowing them to sharpen you. And if you are a member of this church or a church, you need to ask yourself a question. Are you prepared to engage in discipline, whether you are in the giving end or the receiving end of discipline? And lastly, if you have conflict this morning in your life, reconciliation through this Matthew 18 process, one-on-one and a couple people, okay? Reconciliation through this process is your responsibility, whether or not you are the one who have sinned. It is your responsibility. Matthew 18 tells us that the person who is um, wronged is to seek reconciliation. Um, If your brother sins against you, then you should go to them, right? But Matthew 5 tells us the one who has sinned is to go seek reconciliation. What's Jesus doing here? Here's what Matthew 5 says. If you are offering your gift at the altar, if you've come to church to worship God, and you remember that your brother has something against you because you sinned against them, you need to leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother first. So important is unity between Christians that Jesus says, interrupt my act of worship that you are about to do. Do not worship me yet. Go seek out the unity and the forgiveness of those that you are in broken relationship with. Because how can you claim unity in the blood of Christ if you are not enacting that with the other people in your life? Jesus says you'd be a hypocrite if you worship me and ignored the conflict that was going on in your life. You allow me to cover the sins of your life with my blood, but you're saying that I can't cover their sins and that you are withholding forgiveness from them. God says, nope. Go seek this out. So Matthew 18 says, if you are wronged, go seek them out. And Matthew 5 says, if you wrong them, go seek them out. And the idea is, God says, you are both to be actually actively seeking each other out. The minute an offense occurs, you are both to turn to one another and go, I'm sorry. That shouldn't happen. You are both to run to one another and say, let's not live in disunity. Let's live in unity. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. That redeems us from these things. Ideally, both parties, sinned and sinner, or sinned against and sinner, would desire unity in Christ more than their own wounds. Okay? The big picture with church discipline is that God is making us look more like his son. As an individual, when the Holy Spirit disciplines us, he's making us look more like his son. When we all together come together as a church, we as a church must enact that as well in the body of Christ. We are called to say, no further to sin. We love you. We don't love your sin. We want more for your life than you want for your life right now. Jesus has more for your life than you have for your life right now. A response is needed this morning. And I don't know where you are. I know where I am in my life. God knows where you are in your life. Is there conflict that you need to resolve? And maybe that person's not here this morning. Maybe you actually can't. Get there to resolve it. Maybe what you need to do is go out into the hallway and make a phone call. That's scriptural. Go try and resolve that conflict. Sometimes they will not permit conflict to be resolved. But it is your job to go and seek that out. And if they will not repent, then you can go back to God and say, God, I've tried. Will you soften my heart again? And would you soften their heart? I think God would honor that. If there's conflict in your life, it needs to be addressed. If you've got sin, it needs to be repented of. If you're not a member of a church, you need to be a member of a church and submit to the leadership and the authority of Jesus and the leadership of the church. This isn't like one of those emotional calls to come to the altar and weep and moan. And This is just fact of the matter. This is, um, God says discipline needs to be a part of your life if you're a Christian. What did God tell you this morning 
about how discipline needs to be applied to your life? That's the question you and God need to wrestle with because I don't know that. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that we'd be soft and receive the discipline that he would have for us and that as we worship, that we would first seek to resolve conflict and then we would worship him knowing that the greatest conflict we have ever had has been resolved on the cross with Jesus and we can enter into relationship with him free and clear knowing that he loves us even though we had sinned against him. Father, conflict is um, conflict is something I sure don't like. In fact, you, you made me. You know this about me. I, I would run from conflict more than I would run towards conflict. I'm a conflict avoider. I don't like disharmony. I don't like disunity. I don't like making people angry at me. But man, you don't call us to live that way. You call us to... Um, almost to engage conflict on a regular basis. Conflict that leads to life, though. Not for picking a fight's sake, but you call us to lovingly go to people and say, oh, I know that you love Jesus, but this just, this just looks strange in your life. Would you help us today, Father? Hear how you would have us live. The gospel lived out in our daily life as we seek to Help people be reconciled to you. Lord, we might need to first be reconciled to you. We might first need to understand just how much you love us. It says in scripture that while we were still sinning, you died for us. While we were still making you angry over sin, you wrote us the blank check of forgiveness. That's so good news for my soul this morning. Then you've called us as believers and as a church to go do the same for others to write that blank check of forgiveness, to urge them towards holiness. This morning I ask a few things, Father, that our ears and our hearts would be open and soft to you as you speak to us as we worship. That we'd be made aware of the sin in our lives that we need to set aside, the stuff that just does not look like what you've called us to live and does not look like the life that we profess. Lord, I also pray that as a church, you would unite us afresh in your Holy Spirit, that we would learn to live with one another in such a way that we could give and receive discipline as it was meant, not as the world portrays it, but as you portrayed it, Father, relentlessly pursuing sinners and calling them to repentance, rejoicing over grace and peace and holiness. And for that, Father, we're grateful in our own lives. We want to give you all the praise and all the glory for what you're about to do in our hearts and minds as we worship you. We ask that you give us the strength to live out this gospel in action, this discipline in our own lives. We give you all the praise and all the glory, Father. And we worship you with one voice as one body. That's the ministry you guys are called to, to break dividing walls, and that is oftentimes done through writing a blank check of forgiveness. Jesus prayed a prayer in John 17. He said, Father, I pray that they will be one even as we are one. Jesus is currently praying for you to have unity in the body of Christ. Go and live at peace with people, extending forgiveness and receiving discipline from God. Amen? Amen. Amen.